Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott Chapter 3 How It Paid to Advertise This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Don Sutton When Cordelia and Jackie parted, Cordelia drove her smart roaster to the Marlowe apartment on Park Avenue. Still humorously regarding her one advertisement as an absurd adventure. But beneath this amusement at herself, there was a very real excited expectation. Who knew? Indeed, something might happen. However, the following morning, her mood was to discount entirely the humor and the expectation of her advertisement. The thing was just a bit of folly of two extremely foolish girls. Her eyes fell upon a stack of unopened envelopes on her writing desk, and in Cordelia's mood, those envelopes seemed the concrete symbol of her present situation. Indeed, the chief and bitter fact of the Marlowe's existence. They were bills. Some were more than bills, were duns, even threats of action, if there should not be prompt payment upon account. The first of every month saw just such a stack. Bills, forever bills. Cordelia sighed. That was life's direst tragedy, meeting bills. She forced her thoughts to her more immediate problem, making a living, and tried to consider it practically. But Cordelia knew no more about the practicalities of earning money than if she were the daughter of some distant planet blissfully exempt from toil. She knew that the young women who waited on her in the shops, and the young women she had seen entering office buildings, must be paid for their work, and in the first instance must have used some method of gaining their positions. But how much were they paid? And how they secured their places she could not even guess. She considered many kinds of possible work, and out of the great number of undesirable possibilities, she tentatively decided that a private secretaryship might be the least undesirable. But she had to have information. Information was something Jerry Plimpton might be able to give her. I've just had a letter from an umpty seventh cousin, Jerry, she was presently saying over the telephone. The girl wants to come to New York to be a private secretary. How much is a private secretary paid? From nothing up to fifteen or twenty thousand a year. How good is she? I don't know. Suppose she's just fair. A girl has got to be mighty skillful and reliable to get as much as thirty a week. Perhaps she doesn't know anything. What's the best way to start in? Tell her to go to a good business school and then get experience with any decent concern that will give her a chance. But how about this evening, Cordy? Won't you let me... 
Cordelia evaded the invitation. Thirty dollars a week? But thirty dollars a week, considered merely as thirty dollars, had no meaning to Cordelia. Obviously, its meaning had to be expressed in terms of what it would buy. Board and lodging, for instance. She had to know about this. Half an hour later, Cordelia was in a house over in the West Seventies, the address of which she had found in a newspaper under the heading Borders Wanted. Mrs. Gregory led her up two flights, opened a door, and began. One of my best rooms, very private. The bath only two doors down the hall. To Cordelia, the room looked stiflingly small. It was stiflingly hot this June day, and she could see little else in it besides an iron bed. Next, Mrs. Gregory led her to the dining room in front of the basement. A low-ceiling dungeon, it seemed to Cordelia, with a view through grilled windows of passing legs, all uniformly amputated at the knee. How, how much? Cordelia managed to get out through her muffling handkerchief. Only fifteen dollars a week, and the accommodations cannot be equaled at the price in the city. Thanks, I'll tell my cousin, murmured Cordelia, and hurried out to her roadster and back across Central Park. Half of her salary for such accommodations? And she wasn't even earning that salary yet. She drove back to the Park Avenue apartment. Her mother had fled the city to visit a distant cousin, taking Lily with her, and spent the rest of that day and most of the night going over and over her situation. She had to go to work, that was settled, and thirty dollars a week became fixed in her mind as her first economical goal. She simply had to earn at least thirty dollars a week. But how was she going to finance herself until she was able to earn that much? Say, by learning to be a private secretary? There was only one way. That was to sell her car, her beautiful imported roadster. But while she thus planned through the night, a dizzy nausea seized her every time she thought of her swift and appalling descent from her pleasant her magnificent world, from her wonderful world to the dingy, smelly oblivion of Mrs. Gregory's boarding house or its kindred. The next morning, more out of obedience to her implied promise to take Jackie than out of any reawakened expectation, Gloria went to the advertising office of the Times and presented her receipt. Here she had her first great surprise. The clerk handed her a twine-bound packet of what seemed a hundred letters or more. Her second great surprise came when, locked in her room at home, she tore open the top letter of the parcel and read, Dear Little R113, your advertisement listens mighty good to me. Let's get acquainted. 
You sound like just the girl I've been looking for. Call up the telephone number below, ask for me, and we'll arrange to have a nice little dinner together and size each other up. After that, well, if we make a hit with each other, I think you'll be satisfied on the point you made about adequate remuneration. I have enough money and you'll find me no tightwad, eagerly awaiting your ring. Cordelia gazed in utter astoundment at this letter. Then, as its obvious meaning penetrated her numbed consciousness, she gave a gasp, went hot all over with rage, and tore the letters to bits. How dared anyone so insult her? Breast heaving, she regarded the pile with horror. Then she forced herself to read another letter, and another, and another. Each she tore up as she read it, with each her horror and her hot rage mounted. They were different from the first only in text. The purpose behind every one was identical. Cordelia read no more. She simply could not understand the thing. How could she possibly, possibly have laid herself open to such insulting overtures? Then she bethought herself of her advertisement. She had saved a copy of the paper containing it, and this paper she now secured and read the lines she and Jackie had concocted over the tea table. She slowly read the advertisement through two or three times. Then she turned as cold as she had been hot. She gasped again, and with a different kind of horror, as she realized the unsuspected significance that existed in the innocent advertisement drawn up by two confident, worldly-wise, yet unworldly-wise, young women in a larker spirit. To men of loose minds, the thing, of course, read like a veiled invitation, and she had written it. For a space, she was of a mind to destroy the rest of the letters unread, but the very fascination of her horror drew her on, and one after another she read some two dozen more. They varied in expression as much as the men might have differed in their physical appearance. Some were delicate, some direct, some leering, but every writer had read her advertisement as had her first correspondent. At length, she came upon the following, typed upon heavy, expensive paper, the firm's name embossed at the letter's top. My dear Miss R113, if you will apply in person, show this letter and ask to see Mr. Franklin. It is possible that some work may be arranged for you with our firm. Very truly, Kedmar and Franklin, her M.G. This letter brought her up with a start. Its impersonal formality, its brevity, its typewritten signature were coldly refreshing after the odious familiarity of the letters which had preceded it. Kedmar and Franklin. The name sounded familiar. Who were they? 
The austere letterhead conveyed no hint of their business. Oh, yes, she remembered now. They were a firm of lawyers. Big lawyers, too. For dimly remembered newspaper accounts connected the firm with many important cases. And, oh, yes, they were the chief counsel in helping Mrs. Henry Arnold win her sensational countersuit for divorce. She hesitated. What help could she possibly be to such a firm? Then suddenly she made her decision they had asked her to come. There would be nothing lost in seeing them. So she locked in her desk the torn heap of repulsive letters, to be more fully destroyed later, and started for the firm's address on Lower Broadway. An express elevator shot her up to the 13th floor. Here was an impressive line of doors labeled Kedmore and Franklin, one of which was marked Entrance. As she stepped through this door into an outer office of quiet but rich appointments, a young woman of her own age arose from a typewriter and courteously asked her how she could serve her. I wish to see Mr. Franklin. Please give him this letter. The young woman passed through a side door and almost at once returned. You are to come right in, please. With her heart in almost painful wonderment as to what she was about to experience, Cordelia followed her guide through another office, which instantly gave an impression of quiet distinction to a third door, which the young woman opened. You'll find Mr. Franklin waiting, she said. Cordelia stepped through, and the door closed quietly behind her. Her quick eyes took in a large room of yet more simple distinction than the others, with windows that looked downward upon the whole northern and eastern stretch of the city. A man at the flat top desk in the center of the room stood up. She saw he held the letter she had sent in to him. Will you please have a chair? He invited in a low, courteous voice, motioning to a chair beside his desk. She obeyed, giving him a swift glance. Mr. Franklin was perhaps thirty-five, clean-shaven, quietly but smartly dressed, of athletic build, of easy bearing. He gave her an instant sense that here was a man of power, a man who would achieve great things if he had not already achieved them. He resumed his chair after she was seated. And now, Miss, uh, Miss, he gave a start as he now saw her features more clearly. Pardon me, but I believe I already know you. I do not recall ever having seen you before, Cordelia said with some stiffness and in surprise. You are correct, we have never met, but I frequently glance at the photogravure sections of the Sunday papers. And no one more frequently appears there than yourself. You are Miss Cordelia Marlowe. Yes, Cordelia had to admit. She had planned to use her mother's maiden name, at least temporarily. Now, with the admission of her identity, she felt with dismay that the possibility of keeping the Marlowe disaster a secret, as her mother wished, 
was instantly and entirely gone. You wrote the advertisement to which this letter refers? Yes, indeed. He regarded her thoughtfully for a moment. Excuse me just one second, please. A little item I had overlooked. He pressed a button beneath his desk, though there was a double roll of pearl-top buttons in view beside his telephone, and scribbled upon a pad. He folded this, and apparently waited for someone to appear, meditatively tapping his pencil upon the rich mahogany. But no one entered. I guess this other matter will have to wait after all, he remarked, turning his keen, steady gray eyes again to Cordelia. Would you mind telling me, Miss Marlowe, just why you wrote that advertisement? The advertisement itself answers that question. I want work. But why should Miss Cordelia Marlowe want work? Is my reason important to you? Seems to me that the important consideration is whether I am suitable for any work you may have in mind. That is partly correct, Miss Marlowe. But I think you will admit that it is somewhat unusual to have one of the best-known young women of New York's smartest set advertising for work, and any sort of work at that. We are a responsible firm, Miss Marlowe, and therefore must necessarily exercise care regarding our personnel. I think you will agree that we are not exceeding our legitimate requirements in wanting to know what prompted so unusual a procedure on your part. Cordelia had to admit to herself that he was in the right, and she gave a brief account of the family reverses. Strange that I hadn't heard of this, mused Mr. Franklin. No one has heard as yet. No one? No one except my mother, myself, and my best friend, Mrs. Mary Thorndyke. Do you object to telling me why this misfortune has been kept a secret? It was mother's idea. You see, rent for our apartment is paid in advance and it would be cheapest to live there for the present. So since we are not compelled to make a change at once, it occurred to my mother that there was a desperate last chance of something turning up which might save us and make it unnecessary for the public ever to know what our predicament had been. I see. And if nothing does turn up, what will happen to your mother? How will she feel about it? She's a proud woman, and you know what has always been our family position. I think you can answer your question for yourself. I think I can. And your sister, what will become of her? I don't know. She's the one who will really suffer most, for she will not have had a chance of any kind. Thank you for your information, he said quietly. And then after a moment... Just what did you think you might do for us? I had not thought. My advertisement was plain enough in stating that I could do nothing useful. If you have work for me, it will be for you to decide what I can best do. Mr. Franklin nodded. 
What sum had you in mind when you mentioned adequate remuneration? I was hoping for something that would pay me $30 a week. Mr. Franklin slowly shook his head. At $30 a week, I fear we could not use you. Almost unconsciously, as the conversation had continued, a very eager hope had been growing up in Cordelia. Consequently, Mr. Franklin's quiet words had the effect of almost flattening her. Why, why, she stammered, I thought I would be worth at least that much. I don't see how I can live on less. Then hesitantly, Twenty-five? We could not use you at twenty-five. Cordelia stood up dully. Then I might as well be going. I suppose I should thank you for your kindness in seeing me. Goodbye. One moment, please. I am not quite through. Won't you be seated again? That even voice had a compelling quality. Cordelia sank back into her chair. Since you have already permitted me to be inquisitive relative to your personal affairs, I hope you will answer just one more question. How much a year has it cost you to live? I mean for the entire family, and in the manner in which you have been living. I don't know exactly, but around 30000 I should say at least 30000 to live the way you were living, and at that you must have found it hard. I have listened to your proposition, Miss Marlowe, and I now ask you to listen to my proposition. My offer to you is 30000 a year. 30000 gasped Cordelia. It being expressly understood as part of the agreement, if we do agree, the quiet voice went on, that you and your family are to continue in the exact manner in which you have been living. There will, of course, be other conditions. Thirty thousand, repeated the dazed Cordelia. Thirty thousand? When you wouldn't pay me thirty a week? I don't understand. It's very simple. Thirty dollars a week presupposes that you have dropped from your present position and are just Miss Smith. As Miss Smith, you are not worth thirty dollars a week. And besides... You would not particularly interest me, for I can get 10,000 Miss Smiths to do the Miss Smith kind of work. But as Miss Cordelia Marlowe, holding your present position, you are not one of 10,000. You are of a very small number, and as such, you are easily worth 30,000 a year to my firm. Doing what? she inquired. He shifted slightly and seemed to be keenly watching of his carefully chosen words upon her. You must understand that much of our work is of a highly confidential character and is performed for wealthy clients. Many of our clients belong to your own set or else come in contact with it. Frequently a delicate situation arises and we must protect our clients' property and honor. We can best do this if we are in a position to secure information other than through our regular channels concerning the conditions which threaten our clients. A person belonging to your set and moving on terms of intimacy in it 
I can easily secure bits of information which, added to what we already know, would prove of great value to us. Am I to understand that you are proposing that I am to act as a spy upon my friends and that I then pass on this keyhole information to you? She said this in a voice of incredulous indignation. He studied her flushed face a moment before replying. This is what I was intimating, yes. Then you may get someone else for your work. She started to rise. Please keep your chair, Miss Marlowe. I made that intimation solely for the purpose of testing you. Had you said yes, we could not have used you. We require a person of utmost honor. And if you were a person to sell out your friends, you might also sell out us. Well, she demanded. The general nature of the work is much as I have outlined it. But you would be requested to do nothing that would not be pleasing to your honor and good taste. Further, you will have the privilege of refusing to participate in any case that does not appeal to you. As a matter of fact, I believe that most affairs would so engage your sympathy that you would be happy to be of service. I don't know, Cordelia said doubtfully. The arrangement will obviate all the unpleasant features that would attend your sinking to the level of Miss Smith, he suggested. I judge that you are not exactly eager to give up your present position and your present friends? No. He pressed this point gently but firmly. Also, it would obviate the fate of your mother, dreads for herself, and would solve the problem of your sister. Those are good arguments, she said. But before I can answer, I'd like to know what are the other considerations of which you spoke. Certainly. We must require that you never let a single soul know the true character of your relations with our firm. Your explanation for seeing us, if ever an explanation is necessary, is that we are your personal attorneys. I understand. What else? You must never let anyone know the real source of your income. For the public to learn this would mean that the public had also learned of your family reverses, and that might in some way pair your own and your mother's position. Since the general public does not know what your predicament has been, you need explain nothing to the public. The public will never know the difference. As for your friend Mrs. Thorndyke, tell her your mother's fears were premature and groundless and that all is now well. And as for your mother, yes, my mother, how will I count for the money to her? She must be kept in ignorance of what you are doing. Here is an instance where we may properly use a bit of deception that you will agree is legitimate. You spoke of your mother having some speculative stock which is worthless. Get that stock into my possession, and I will handle it in some way which will make her believe she has recovered her lost fortune. The money which you earn will then come to you through your mother. 
I see. What are the other conditions? We have covered them all. I am now waiting for your yes or no. I can only say yes to such an offer, especially when it leaves me free to decline any work you may propose. Though, she added, your proposition doesn't yet seem real to me. I am glad you are to be with us, he said. Even now his voice did not alter in its courteous business-like quality. And you will soon find that the proposition is real enough. When do you want me to begin? And on what piece of work? I wish you to begin at once, if possible. I have one case in hand in which I am certain you can render the greatest service, but the circumstances are not yet quite ripe for you. May I ask what were your own plans prior to the time your mother gave you her bad news? I had accepted an invitation to visit a school friend, Miss Gladys Norworth. Of course, I have canceled it. Gladys Norworth, exclaimed Mr. Franklin, the great heiress? That, Miss Norworth? Yes. Mr. Franklin's gray eyes held a surprised brightness for a moment, then were as calm as before. Since I am not quite ready with the case I referred to, I suggest that in the meantime you make your visit with Miss Norworth as originally arranged. Cordelia blinked at this. Mr. Franklin hesitated an instant, then continued, I think it might be well for me to say a little more. Very shortly I would have asked you to go to Miss Norworth anyhow. Her affairs constitute one of our cases. I think you now begin to see the value that our connection with you will be to us. You have the natural entree to the kind of people we must keep in touch with. Gladys Norworth, one of your cases? exclaimed Cordelia. I said her affairs, corrected Mr. Franklin. Miss Norworth knows nothing of our firm being interested in her, and I wish you to take care not to let her suspect it. If she did, our efforts might be useless. We are confidential counsel to the trustee of her estate. Her trustees believe something is seriously wrong with her affairs, but they themselves have been baffled as to what it is. That is why they have secretly entrusted us with the matter. We have gained some facts and have some suspicions, but we have not yet penetrated the mystery. That is what I wish you to do. Help us get to the heart of this baffling matter. You will please notice everything and report every detail to me, no matter how unimportant it may seem to you. That is exactly what I said I could not do. Spy upon my friends. I thought we had covered that, Mr. Franklin said patiently. You are not acting as a spy, at least not in the repugnant sense of the word. You are in reality your friend's protector, though she does not know it and must not know it. You are really trying to help save your friend. That is something very different, is it not? Yes, Cordelia admitted. Then you will go, as soon as arrangements are made? Yes. 
But would you mind telling me something about the situation? I cannot without a breach of good faith toward the trustees. Besides, there is no need for you to know much. What you need, you will learn for yourself. Further, I will very frankly admit, I do not understand the thing myself, except that something strange is going on behind the surface. And now, Miss Marlowe, I believe that is everything, except the discussing of financial plans involving your getting into my hands your mother's oil stock. Thirty minutes later, that discussion was over, and Mr. Franklin opened the door for her with a courteous bow. As she shot down the elevator and walked as in a dream up Broadway, within her was a chaos of wonderment and thrilling exultation, a whirling chaos that had three chief elements. This Mr. Franklin, clear-thinking, never hesitant for a word, always courteous, could he possibly be other than the polished gentleman, the discreet repository of other people's confidences and worries that he seemed to be? What was this strange thing that was going on in Gladys Norworth's affairs? Now that a point had been made of it, it did seem that Gladys for a long time had been behaving oddly. What was she, Cordelia, going to find out? What was going to happen to her? But more thrilling than either of these thoughts was the change that had come in her fortunes. An hour before, she had been a pauper, seeking work at a miserable wage, and now she was her old self again. Her mother was saved. Lily was saved. She was saved. The family position was unchanged. She was to remain up in her own world. The world that loved her. The world she loved. And, and the world where she and Jerry Plimpton would be meeting as before. End of section three.